Amen. That's the greatest exchange program in the universe. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you? Everybody staying warm this week? Yeah, I've been praying that you would be warm this week. I have figured out, if I just figure out what God's doing and pray to that end, it always works out. So when I heard there was a heat streak coming, I just prayed you'd all stay warm. And guess what? My prayers have been answered. So uh, it's always good to figure out what God's doing and just agree with Him and and pray along those lines. Um, So anyway... Uh, boy, it's just good to be together. We do begin new classes next week, and uh, the sign-up board's in the lobby. We don't want to have anybody have heat stroke out on the patio there. And uh, so if you would sign up and uh, jump into one of those, I've had the chance to... One of the things I do is I just go from class to class. And uh, man, what a joy it was to be in the class on what the Bible says about uh, the Holy Spirit in Christ. It was good to jump into the shape class last week in Galatians. Any of you that were in Galatians class this morning, uh, this is just going to add fuel to what Jerry has so marvelously led us through in Galatians this morning. So just want to encourage you to jump in and uh, have your young people jump into the middle school, high school, kids into the children's area as well. Well, we're jumping into the book of Philippians, a book that was written by the Apostle Paul, and Timothy is mentioned in there with him, although it really is written by the Apostle Paul, to a local church not unlike ours. I mean, one of the main differences would be that in those days, there was really just one church in each town. Uh, So they didn't pray for their fellow sister churches as we did this morning. Um, But he writes this letter to them in Philippi, uh, which was a part of Greece. It's a church that he had planted. It's a church uh, that, um, well, that he had probably the closest relationship with. Um, They financially supported him. They went back and forth a few times. And so he writes this letter as he's actually sitting in Rome uh, in prison or under house arrest. We'll look at more of that next week. But grab something and turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And it's just important to, to follow along and look at Scripture. Uh, that's what is inspired um, and is perfect, not necessarily what I'm going to say. And so that's just why we always encourage people to do that. If you don't have anything, just grab one of the Bibles in that rack in front of you, and there's the page number that we're on. Um, So last week, when we jumped into this, uh, I told you that I felt like uh, what Paul describes his and, and Timothy's relationship to Christ is really the theme of the entire book, and really this letter that he writes was a call to the Philippians to live like this And it's a call to us to live like this as well. And that call is simply to live as bond slaves of Christ Jesus. In Philippians 1 verse 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, and how do they describe their relationship with Jesus Christ? Bond servants or bond slaves. We walk through some of the baggage of saying servants, some of the baggage of slaves and what it means to be bonded, bond together. Um, But really, that's the picture that Paul chooses here. James does the same thing in the book of James. Peter does the same thing in his epistles. And so it's a very common term that describes a 
healthy relationship with Christ Jesus. And the beauty of that is, is to the extent that we are bond slaves of Christ Jesus, He gets to be our Lord, and when He is Lord, He directs our lives by providing things to us and, and directing us in ways that we are not smart enough, nor do we even have the means to provide to do that. And it's summarized there in verse 2, of grace and peace to you. You want all the grace of God? Live as a bond slave to Jesus Christ. To the extent you, that we exert our own authority and lean upon somebody else, ourselves being the master of our lives, we cut off, if you will, uh, some of the supply of His grace and peace to our lives. And so there is, this is what I really think is the theme of the whole book. It is calling the Philippians, it is calling us to see Jesus as our Lord, which means we are His bond slaves. Now, you might say, well, I've always heard that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. Yeah. But how do you have joy? Do you pray for joy? Do you seek after joy? Do you beat yourself up when you're not joyful in circumstances? Well, all that's a waste of energy. Joy is a byproduct of having Jesus as your Lord and living as a bond slave. And so, if you want joy in all circumstances, don't try to figure out joy. Live as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And so, he, we looked at the first two verses last week, and then we want to jump into verses 3 through 11 this morning. Now, before we look at those, before you look at them, let me ask you this. How do you think about other people here at Calvary? How do you feel about them? How do you pray for him? We're going to see Paul and what he thinks about the Philippians here. We're going to see why he feels that way and how he prays for them. And, and as he lays out his heart to them, he again just shows us what it means a bond slave of Jesus Christ and how we should think about others in the body of Christ how we and why we should feel that way about them, and how we should be praying for them, ourselves, our family as well, but them. And so let me pray for that, and then we're going to jump in here and read this, and then we're going to just let the Word wash us and transform us. So, Spirit of the living God, even as you carried Paul along to write these for the benefit of the Philippians 2,000 years ago, would you carry me along? Would you carry us along so that these words would be living and active and accomplish the purpose for which you intend them right now, this morning, for your great honor and glory and for the sharing of the gospel? And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now, before I read it, let me say this. The grammar of these, three, of these verses, 3 through 11, is atrocious. This would drive my English high school teacher, Mrs. Spade, nuts. I'm guessing that if the Apostle Paul had written this in his Greek grammar school, he would have failed. He just, 
he just is all over the place, which, which just causes people to say, ay, yeah, yeah, is this the object of this? Is this the subject? What is, what is going on here? But the point is, it's really clear what's going on, and what is happening is Paul is just speaking out of a heart that is bursting with the Philippians, and so the grammar's all screwed up because he keeps repeating things and he keeps saying things that don't fit grammatically, but man, do they express the heart of him for the Philippian believers. I'm sure you've had this experience with other people. You just stumble all over yourself trying to tell them how much you love them or how, what great, how great they are, right? Well, that's exactly what goes on here in the fullness of the Spirit. And, and so he just uh, it's just cool. Now, uh, some of it gets lost in our English translation, but not all of it. I just wanted you to know, grammatically it stinks, but man, there's no doubt about how much he stumbles over words to communicate what is going on in his heart for God and for the Philippians. Beginning of verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart." Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Mm. Did you like the Philippians? Well, let's just work our way down through this, and I don't really have a neat outline. I've just put together some of the phrases here as we follow along. But uh, you'll notice that he says, when I think of you, when I think of you. And so, um, when he thought of them as a congregation, when he thought of them as individuals, uh, it'd be like, and now remember, he's sitting in a prison cell. And, And so, whenever the picture would come to his mind of them gathered together for worship or for teaching. Or whenever he would think of a particular person, whether it's Mark or whether it's Steve, or no matter who it might be, what jumped off of his heart when he thought of them? What jumped off his heart? Oh, I thank my God for you. Why would he thank God? Because he recognizes this is a redemptive work of God. What did he have in common with the Philippians? Nothing except Christ, which means he had everything that was of any importance whatsoever in common with them. And so he just says, man, I think of you, and a visceral response is, wow, I thank my God for you. 
And he doesn't just thank God for them, but he goes on and says, and I pray for you. And you don't want to know what my prayer is filled with? It's not filled with those rascals. Would you square them away? They're so screwed up. They're hopeless. Why aren't they treating me better? What's his prayer filled with? What's it say? Constant joy. Constant joy. He thinks of them. He says, wow, thanks God for these people individually and collectively. And I just want you to know when I'm praying for you, my prayers are filled with constant joy for you all, for all of you. That's not a bad visceral response when you think about the people in church with you, is it? What do you think? That was his visceral response to what's going on. Now, we're going to see why he felt that way in verses 5 through 8. And then we're going to see what he's praying for them for in verses 9 through 11. So, let's just work our way through it. Because all of our responses come out of something, right? All of our relational responses. When, when you think of somebody, your visceral response is based upon something, right? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. What was his response based upon? Why did he say, wow, God, I thank you for them. My prayers for them are filled with joy constantly. What was he thinking? I already did that one, didn't I? Here's why. The first reason why is their consistent participation in the gospel. Look at verse 5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You know why I thank God for you? Do you know why my prayers are filled with joy with you? Because when I came into Philippi and I went out there on that Sabbath morning and I met Lydia and those women gathered for prayer, man, you were all about the gospel as soon as you heard about it. That demon-possessed girl, that fortune teller that I got irritated at, so I cast the demon out of her. That jailer... When God set us free and he and his household were all saved, from the very first day, when you heard the gospel, you received the gospel, and you became all about the gospel until now. You know what? When I left you and now I'm in prison, and here I am, and I'm in a place that would cause embarrassment, and for you to have any relationship with me may be putting you at risk, guess what? You're still about the gospel. You're still about the gospel. Man, he was so grateful for the Philippians because they organized their lives around the gospel. Once they received the gospel, they organized their life around the gospel. In our bulletins every week, we have that section called On Mission. This is really an attempt to remind all of us what we should be organizing our lives around. That we're joyful partners in the gospel. And we emphasize three different things. This doesn't intended to be all inclusive. But organizing our lives around the gospel to those people that God has strategically and sovereignly placed in our lives. They're not going to walk into a church. God's causing us to walk into their lives. 
organizing our lives around the gospel with gospel partnering churches in our city. And what a joy it is to pray for Rock Harbor this morning and Andrew and what God is doing through them here in this city. And then partnering with people like the Apostle Paul, the waters who go to other places that are not geographically around us and partnering with them to reach people which we cannot reach, but God has called them to reach. They need prayer and they need financial support, and that's our joy to provide that with them. He says, you know, I don't know why I just thank God for you and my every prayer is for joy because there's been a consistent participation in the gospel. You are individuals and your families and your church body who's organized and keeps reorganizing your life around the gospel, living it and helping other people hear it so that they might believe. But it doesn't just stop there. In verse 3, he says, here's another reason why, and that is, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, but my joy is not just based upon what I can do in your lives. I'm in prison for crying out loud. What can I help you? I'm writing this letter. But, and I'd love to come to you, but my, my, my uh, joy is not dependent upon my ability to help you. My joy is not even dependent upon your ability to live the Christian life. My joy is founded in a confidence that Jesus, who began a good work in you individually and as a church body, is going to perfect it. He's going to perfect it. He's going to bring it to a fullness which only he can. And so he has these two reasons of why he's so thankful to God for them and why every prayer is filled with joy. This constant relational participation in the gospel, but a solid confidence that God was going to perfect them individually as a church and he with them over the long haul. And that's why he says in verse Five, in view of. You well know the way you view people is the way you respond when you think about them, right? Why did Paul respond with such thankfulness and such joy? Because he viewed them by their participation in the gospel and their relationship with Christ. He did not view them based upon how they had helped him, what they had done for him or any of that other stuff. We said that's one of the great marks of being a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's why he said, as we, we looked at last week, he said, I can send Timothy to you because he's one who will genuinely care for your well-being. He said, I can send Timothy because he's a bond slave of Jesus. When he gets there, he's not going to say, it's all about me. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to encourage me? And so this was Paul's view of them which then caused this visceral response to the Lord whenever he thought of them. He feels the need to go on and justify this. <laughs> um, 
which is so often when you're trying to share your heart with someone, right? It seems like the words just don't seem enough, so then you've got to say even more words. And so he says in verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. You, you get the sense he's trying to justify himself? He's trying to say, this is believable. <laughs> this is real. I'm right in feeling, and he uses the feeling word there, doesn't he? I'm right in feeling this way about you. And he gives really three reasons why he is right in feeling this way about him. The first one is right there, I have you in my heart. You are in my heart. This is not just some casual church relationship. I'm just not one of your missionaries. God has woven you into the very core of my heart. He'll say this about the Corinthian church as well, that God had written them on his heart. And so you are in the very core of my heart. And he goes on and gives probably a couple reasons how God winds people into our heart. He goes on and says next, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are you all are partakers of grace with me. He says, we are fellow partakers or participants in grace. The word partakers is the word koinonia, which we often translate fellowship. But it's used here in the sense of our fellowship is in the gospel. It's in the gospel and he says, I am a receiver of grace. You are receivers of grace. We keep walking in the grace of God through all kinds of circumstances. When I was with you, when I am separated from you, and here he specifically mentions even in my imprisonment. So he mentions three different things here. My imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel, that would be apologia, the apologetic side of it, giving a defense for the gospel, as well as confirmation of the gospel. And that would be probably just more the proclamation of the gospel and the reasons why we should believe it. So one's defending it, one of us just getting it out there. But even in his imprisonment, he says, we are together partakers of grace. And then he goes on and says, this is really kind of the funny one in one sense, God has given me this affection for you, right? For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He, he, he appeals to God since they can't see him. He's in the prison cell. They're separated by a ton of miles he says, God is my witness that Christ has given me this affection for you. I just picture the Apostle Paul even saying, you know I'm not a naturally affectionate guy. I mean, I just soon put people in prison as anything. That's what I did before I met Christ. I, I love the facts. Just give me the facts, man. I can take you or leave you. That's all before Christ. When Jesus Christ became my master, he put me and caused me to be in an affectionate man. The word affection literally means your bowels, your innards get tugged around by people. 
He says, Jesus has transformed me. I'm now an affectionate man, and I have an affection for you. I mean, can't you see Paul as a changed man? From being on the road to Damascus and putting people in, in prison because they did not believe the truth. Don't you see Paul as one who could hammer the truth? And he says, man, God has changed me. He's changed me. And he's put you in my heart. You know what that means? That when you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. When you're hurting, oh, my heart gets pulled too. I'm, I'm just right in feeling this way because of what God has done because we're common participants in grace, and God has woven you into my heart. One of the commentators says, it was the indwelling Christ who was producing the fruit of love in Paul by the Holy Spirit, and who thus enabled him to yearn for their welfare with the compassion of his Lord. Well, that's why he would thank God every time a picture of one of the Philippian believers popped into his head or the whole church body popped into his head. And then he went on to say, and I always pray for you filled with joy or, or just uh, constantly with joy. Now we're going to learn what he prays for them for. And this is super instructive. This, you read prayers like this and you realize, ooh, I don't pray like this. I pray for a lot of other things. I'm not too sure I'm praying for this. And I suspect this is a prayer that Paul prayed for himself that had resulted in his view of the other believers and resulted in being able to say, oh, I thank my God for them, and my every prayer for them is filled with joy. And it's such an appropriate prayer for us to pray for ourselves and our families and for the people sitting in the pew around you. And so let's look at it for a minute. Let's look at how Paul prayed for them, beginning in verse 9. He prays that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, let's break this down a little bit, and we'll walk our way through it, and I pray God will write this into our hearts of how to pray for ourselves and other people. It's kind of what I would call a domino prayer. It begins with something exceptionally internal in the core of our being that then we uh, cultivate through some of our activities which then puts us in a place to be able to make choices, and then those choices bear amazing fruit in our lives that we would never be able to, to bear. So that's kind of the pattern of it, and I've got it up here on the PowerPoint to just kind of show you some of this, but the, the core prayer is that your love may abound still more and more, right? That's the core prayer that your love may abound still more and more. That's always an appropriate prayer to pray. You'll find Paul does the same thing with Ephesians. He does it all over the place. Maybe it's an answer to this prayer that caused his heart to become affectionate for people. But 
but he just prays that your love may abound still more and more. What does that imply? It implies that their love is already abounding, but what? Man, God has more love that he wants to place in, in their hearts so that it will abound more and more. When do you get to the end of this prayer? Never. 1 Corinthians 13 says love even goes on into heaven. Faith and hope don't. Love does. This is the word agape love. It's the love that is only begins and originates with God. It's that self-sacrificing love. It's that kind of love that has no expectations and doesn't do things for what it might get back. And as I said, its only source is, is, is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so he begins by praying, your love may abound still more wherever you're at in that more, more. And then he goes on to describe something that needs to be done to cultivate this kind of love, because this is not the kind of love we naturally think about. This isn't the kind of love that our friends are talking about. This isn't the kind of love that you read in the newspapers or see on movies. He says, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge in all discernment. He says this love needs to abound according to real knowledge. Now, when we use the word knowledge of something material, it's just fact-based about this kind of wood and how it responds and all that. When it is used in relationships, as this would be with God, then there's always cognitive facts but there's also always the growing, building relationship where we know the person better. And that's the way it would be used here, in real knowledge. What does that imply? If there's real knowledge, what else is there? False knowledge. There's false knowledge. And so there needs to be a growing in love, an abounding in love according to real knowledge. How would we know that? The only way we really know that is from the Scriptures. The Scriptures point out what is real knowledge about who God is and who we are and the way life works in the gospel and false knowledge. And so this love abounds by us growing in our knowledge, growing in our relationship with God through the Scriptures with the help of other people and all of those other dynamics and all discernment. What does real knowledge bring you to the point of? Once you have an understanding of what real knowledge is and what false knowledge is, then you have the ability to discern. The word discern is what was used of determining when you got money, whether it was real or counterfeit. And so he says, knowledge, true knowledge, gives you the ability to say, that is of God, that is not of God. It gives the ability to discern those kinds of things. The next step is just as crucial, and that is so that then you can approve what is excellent. In other words, uh, this love abounds. God puts this love in our hearts. We cultivate it through knowing Him better and knowing His ways better. That gives us the ability to discern, but discernment is no good if you don't act on the discernment, if you don't take 
what is excellent, what is true knowledge, what is of God, and approve of that. But boy, when you approve of what is excellent, what does it do? I love the word excellent. When you approve of what is excellent, it causes your life to excel. It's like stepping on rocks across a river. It just causes your life to excel. So choosing or proving what is excellent causes one's life to excel. Here's some synonyms. It causes your life to be exceptional, first-rate, extraordinary, incomparable, brilliant. Now, I need to put a little description on this because that all has to do with living in the gospel and getting the gospel out. It doesn't have to do with houses and cars and ease of life. It has to do with when you're thrown in jail in Philippi and you've been beaten with rods, you're sitting there singing hymns to the glory of God. That's, where does that come from? A love of God in the hearts and a knowledge of God to be able to discern between what is good and what is not good. I'm in prison for preaching the gospel. This is no fault of my own. I will approve of being in prison, and I will praise my God for it. Woo! And what happens to the Philippian jailer and his whole household believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get saved? So I'm not talking about painless living here. That's not the promise. The promise is to gospel living and being participants in the gospel. Now, in what ways does it cause our life to excel? Well, I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> he tells us three ways right here. One of the ways has to do with us individually and probably as a church. One of the ways has to do with the people around us, and one of the ways has to do with how it reflects upon God. Look at this. He says, for ourselves and our church, he says, you will be sincere and blameless until you see Christ. Sincere and blameless are two sides of the same coin. Sincere means genuine, you'll be the real deal. Blameless means there will be no fault held against you. Now, this is not talking about justified and our positional standing with Christ. This has to do with our holy living our righteous living. It doesn't imply perfection, but it does point to the fact that one day every one of us as believers will have a meeting with Jesus Christ. And that meeting will have to do with how much we let the love of God abound in our hearts and we cultivated it in knowledge so that we could be discerning and we would approve what is excellent. Because when we approve of what is excellent, it shows up in a sincere and blameless life on the judgment day. When we are judged between what is gold and silver and precious stone and what gets rewarded for eternity and what is wood, hay, and stubble and what gets burned up and there's never any reward from it whatsoever. He says that's one of the ways that will cause your life to excel. It will put you in the best place possible when you see Jesus face to face. He says, oh, there's a benefit to the people around you, verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. 
He says, you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You'll be filled with fruit that is just right in every single circumstance, which only comes through Jesus Christ. So how does it come through Jesus Christ? Because the love of Jesus Christ is, is growing and abounding more and more in our hearts, and we're cultivating that so that we know that, and we make choices based upon what we know about that. And this is the way that, one of the ways it excels. The people around us will experience the fruits of righteousness in our life. They'll experience an appropriate gospel being lived out. They will experience appropriate presentations of the gospel to them. They will experience joy and peace and patience and kindness and meekness and self-control so that when they don't treat us right, we're still filled with this and that's what comes out. Whatever the circumstances are, that's what they will experience. And so it has everything to do with our gospel witness to other people whereby they would say, you're weird. <laughs> How do you explain this? You can say, Jesus Christ has placed his love in my heart. And it has been abounding. There is no other explanation. If you knew who I was apart from Jesus, you would see a very different response. And then the culminating, excelling is God gets what? Glory and praise. To the glory and praise of God. This is the prayer to pray for ourselves, is it not? And this is the prayer to pray for each other in the church. So I want to give you a chance to do that this morning. And I just would encourage you to use those verses in 9 through 11. And I want to ask you to pray it for yourself first. Now this assumes that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God through Christ. If there's any questions about that, if you've never experienced the for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that you can believe upon him and not perish but have everlasting life of which this is a description, then some of our ministry leaders are going to be up front here at the close of the service. Just come up and tell them that and ask them. Just say, I'm not sure or I don't know. And we would love to shepherd you in that. But if you know the love of Christ, it's already there and it's been abounding some, let's pray that it would abound more and more. Amen? So each just bow your heads between you and the God who is love. Go ahead and just pray verses 9 through 11 for yourself.
And then if you would, just pray for various people that God brings to mind here at Calvary and pray this for them. Just pray for it by name. And uh, let me give you a few minutes so that you can go through several people. Or if you don't know any particular names, uh, just pray it for us as a church body. I'll wrap us up in just a moment praying that. But man, if, if God would be pleased to answer this prayer, which he will, what a different person I will be. What a different people we will be. Father, I want to thank you for every single person that's here this morning. And I thank you, O oh God, for each and every one of them. I thank you for the people that make up this local church. Man, I do just bless you and thank you. And it is with great joy, Lord, that I pray that our love may abound still more and more. In real knowledge, in all discernment. Lord, I pray that each of us individually, each couple, each family, and we as a church body would be constantly approving of the things that are excellent. And I want to thank you that then you will cause us to be sincere and blameless until the day and on the day that we meet you, Lord Jesus, face to face. And I want to thank you that you're going to do in us what we cannot do ourselves, and that is to cause us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that you, O oh God, will get all the glory and the praise for the things you have done. We bless you and thank you for being such a God. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray.